The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. A few years ago, quite a number of years ago, I had the privilege of being down outside of Buenos Aires and working with a church in an impoverished area there, Marcelo Robles, who was the pastor's father, uh, was a great man and sort of the Billy Graham of, uh, of Argentina, was faithful to present his word, and they ministered truly to the least of these. And what I saw within the lives of many of the people was a true, a con- they weren't perfect, but there was a consistency to their life. They took, they took the truth of the gospel, they believed it, and then they implemented it within their own lives, and it affected the manner in which they lived. I still remember distinctly an old gentleman he had one arm. He lived uh, in a shanty town, truly a shanty town of cardboard boxes and tin uh, houses. And he rode around this area of Buenos Aires on a little cart, one of the two-wheel carts that's held with a small donkey. And he would go around and he would collect bricks and pieces of bricks. And he took these bricks and he would take them back into his little shanty town. And I remember asking Marcelo, saying, what's this man doing? Is he building his house? He said, no, he started an orphanage within the shanty town. And the bricks that he collects every single day, he's built a brick structure within this house. And we went and I visited him and had the chance to meet him. Now on the side of this brick building that he built with one hand on a a horse-drawn cart around the impoverished areas of Buenos Aires was a little cardboard and tin lean-to and that was his house. He didn't build it for himself. And I remember asking Marcelo, and then asking this man through the translation, why do you do it? What's your motivation for doing this? And he simply said, Jesus. I said, can you give me more? And he said, if he did all that for me, how can I not do any of this for them? Ah. Oh. The gospel truth, the reality of the rescue that was provided for us in Christ Jesus had taken root in this man's life. And he didn't hate the Lord for causing him to lose an arm. He didn't dismiss God for putting him in an impoverished area, in a country with a corrupt rule. Uh, But he took it as opportunity that God had redeemed his life And had then given him chance now to go in as an agent of that redemption, an agent of that change, the opportunity for renewal, to go right into the midst of this horrible, terrible, impoverished place and give hope and life to children who had no parents or at least didn't have any parents who cared for them. I thought, how amazing is that? You see, that's what Paul has been talking about and now transitions to talk about in chapter 12. He says, if you get the gospel, if you understand it, if it has taken root within your life, and it is more than a simple academic exercise, it's not just an intellectual something for you to spar with other people or to distinguish yourself Uh, from those horrible pagans within the world. But it is actually a truth that has 
penetrated into your heart, transformed your heart into a new and living heart, that this truth of chapters 1 through 11 take root within you, and now therefore your lives are radically changed forever, and you live differently. You act differently. You are different. You do things that the world will look at you and go, what in the world are you doing? Why would you be doing that? Hey, old man, God gave you, you got the short end of the stick on this one. He gave you one arm. He caused you to be born into this poor area of this city. Look at the beauty and the affluence of Buenos Aires, the Paris of South America. The gorgeous nature. And you're stuck on the outside. And you're living in this horrible place. And this man would look at you and go, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't, that doesn't compute. Because Christ gave himself for me. And so I offer him what I have, which is my life to do good within this world. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Such a simple faith. We make it way too complex. You see, Paul now is shifting from, as we talk about here, and I talk about here regularly with you now for the last four or so years, the indicative comes first, then the imperative. The indicative, the truth. This is who you are in Christ. This is the reality of the gospel. This is what has happened uh, within the gospel message, within the reality of who God is, who you are in relation to God, what has taken place and transpired through the transaction of the gospel that you have been given the righteousness of Christ and that you are now a believer, a new creation in Christ Jesus, created for good works within him. Now, therefore, imperative, do this. Can't, I've heard from so many of you who've said, Bill, we've never heard anybody preach much on Romans 1 through 11, especially 8 or 9, 10, and 11. And as I go and look and read so many uh, commentaries or listen to sermon series, most of them begin with chapter 12. Folks, chapter 12 makes absolutely no sense without the first part of the letter. Chapter 12 becomes incredibly burdensome. Chapter 12, if you start in chapter 12, and for many of you, you've started in chapter 12. You were raised within churches into children's ministry beginning in chapter 12, and into student ministries in chapter 12, and into the young adult ministries and college ministries in chapter 12, and churches in chapter 12. And you know what it's done when you start in chapter 12 without the context of chapters 1 through 11, you become the older brother of Luke 15. You obey the Father and you resent Him. Because you're always wondering whether your sacrifice is acceptable to Him. Whether all the things you're doing and all the things you're not doing uh, are acceptable to Him. And you, you find is you're that elder brother who is so deeply lost that you resent anyone who experiences and understands the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and restoration. And you look at your Father in, you he- in heaven and as Martin Luther did, And you say, I obeyed you my whole life and I've hated you every moment of it. You're a drill sergeant and a taskmaster. Folks, you can't start in 12. You have to start somewhere else. But then, guess what? We do have to get to 12. There is some action involved. 
the Christian life actually does mean you're different and there is obedience that's demanded and there is a lifestyle that's expected. There is a change that is afforded. We can't hang out over in the greasy grace and sloppy agape camp over here and go, well, it doesn't matter. God just loves me. It doesn't matter how I live. Paul would go, may it never be. He already said that actually in 1 through 11. Do you mean that I should sin that grace may abound even more? And Paul goes, of course that's what I mean. He said, of course not. What a, what a kindergarten ant question that is. Oh, but he's talking to new believers, so it makes sense. And so you as more mature believers say, Bill, we've got this. Our lives reflect perfectly the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We don't struggle with these things. Paul would say, no. You struggle with them. You wrestle with them. And so he wrote these words, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, looking at the first two verses. This is the very word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Amen. So, we're going to look at just several different things today, kind of a list again as we come through, because there's no way to do justice to this text in one sermon. One of my heroes of the faith, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached ten sermons on verses one and two. Ten! As I read and listened to them this week, I thought, what am I even trying to do? So this is a primer. This is a flyover, but I want you to take these things, study them, go deeper with them, have conversations about them. Don't let them just be a gloss, but take them and see where they lead you in your life. Because the overarching thing that I want you to see, the sort of uh, the thesis statement, if you would, for this talk, is that God's great work of salvation compels us to worship Him through the manner in which we live day to day. Because of God's great work of salvation, it compels us, it motivates us, it moves us out to worship Him, to give Him worth and value, to honor Him through the mechanism or through the manner in which we live day to day. It matters how we live as a Christian church, folks. Francis Schaeffer the great apologist and pastor, even within our own denomination, said that the life of the Christian gives the non-Christian the right to judge the validity of the gospel. If you don't think that the world and the culture around you is looking at you to see if this truth is true, to see if it matters, you're crazy, you're naive. I was thinking this morning and praying uh, as Molly and Henry were up here singing. I was thankful for them, but I was praying for them. Because, oh, wouldn't it be great for Satan to convince them that the manner in which they live their life doesn't matter, that they can come and stand up here and sing praises to God and then live however they want to live. And what a statement to the world to say it doesn't matter. And that's why Paul says, so very few of you should ever step into positions of leadership. So very few of you should ever step into places where the world's going to be watching. But here's the reality. The world's watching each of us. 
They're watching you in your schools. They're watching you in your clubs. They're watching you on the course and on the courts. They're watching you in your workplaces. They're watching you in what you're doing. And they're assessing how true the gospel is. So it matters how we live. So here's a few of the things that we're going to take away today. You see, Paul begins this section with a personal appeal. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Paul makes it personal. Paul takes it from the theoretical. Paul takes it uh, from this wonderful, systematic, and doctrinal teaching. And he says, now, friends, I beseech you, the old King James, I appeal to you, I beg you, Do something with the first 11 chapters. Don't just read them. Don't just memorize them. Take them and press it down into your heart. Let it do something within you. I'm begging you. Paul. Sitting there and going, God, I don't know a better way to say this to them. So here's what I'm going to say. I'm throwing myself out there. I'm saying, and I, in Paul's line, as your pastor would use that same language to you, I beg you. Take the truths and the beauty of the gospel and live accordingly. Live it out. Please. Not for my sake. Not for the church's sake per se. But for your sake. Live it out. Because it's in the living it out that you're showing whether or not you believe it. Whether it's true in your life. Folks, the only way that you can tell if an apple tree is an apple tree is when it bears apples. The only way you can tell if an orange tree is an orange tree is when it bears the fruit that are oranges. And so the only way that you can tell whether a Christian is a Christian is not that they tell you they're a Christian, but they bear the fruit of Christianity. And there's too many people within the church, our church and other churches, that just say they're Christians and live a life that no one would ever be able to condemn them of in a court of law to say that they were a Christian. So how we live matters. Paul's personal appeal. Now some of you are going, oh good, Bill's really getting, he's going to preach today. He's going to step on some toes today because he's going to tell us how we're supposed to live what we're supposed to do, and we've been waiting for the do sermon. What are we supposed to do about this stuff? Well, folks, before you think that I'm presenting to you moralism or legalism, let's begin with this. This is the motivation and the power to live this life. First point, the motivation and power. By the mercies of God. The mercies of God are His great work of salvation described in chapters 1 through 11. It is a reminder to us that there is this new motivation for living the Christian life. Our source of power is different from that of the world. Our motive for doing everything is different from the world. It is based on your identity in Christ. You aren't trying to be a Christian. You are a Christian. 
You are declared. Paul over and over and over again said justification. You are justified that you are called, that you're chosen, but you are justified that you are given the very righteousness of God and that he, the ultimate judge of the universe, has now declared you to be his son or daughter. And so there is a new motivation and a new power, and that is that you are living out of your identity. Now, it's fascinating that we're living within a world and a culture where identity is being grayed. That we've lost the identity of an individual. But Paul would say, never lose your identity, for that is the very thing that motivates how you live. And so the first thing I would ask you is, what's your identity? Are you or are you not a Christian? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if all the things of chapters 1 through 11 have happened within your life and you have been radically transformed and saved by Him, then you have a new power and a new motivation. The old motivation and the old power, the old power was fear. You were driven by fear in order to try to get God's favor. And the motivation was to get God's favor. It was you're doing all these acts of righteousness and all these good things so that God would love you enough to let you into heaven. Paul says it's totally new by the mercies of God. By everything that we've talked about in chapters 1 through 11. Because of the full, completed work of Jesus Christ in your life applied to you. Now based on that, Live. Live who you are. Be who you are as a Christian. That's your true identity. So he says there's a new motivation and power in the midst of this. There's also, we see, a purpose. The purpose of this all is that we offer ourselves to God as a sacrifice. It's, it's our worship to Him. That's the purpose of offering it to him as a sacrifice. But it's a fascinating play on words. The word sacrifice within uh, the Greek includes the word and the idea of killing. And so look what Paul is saying. Now here, present your bodies as a living killing to God. What a paradox. He's saying, what? It's a different kind of sacrifice altogether. The purpose then is to worship him not to get him to forgive you. You see, sacrifices leading up to this time were bloody sacrifices. They were dead sacrifices. There had to be blood shed in order for atonement to happen, in order for God to accept. But Christ came, and we celebrate at this table today, that Christ came and he offered himself up as the last bloody sacrifice. Christ was the last destroyed sacrifice. There is no need for a temple. And Jerusalem didn't understand that. And Israel didn't understand that. So God had to bring the Romans in in 70 AD to destroy the temple. Never to be rebuilt, by the way. It doesn't need to be rebuilt. Christ said, I don't need a temple anymore. You don't need a temple anymore. I'm the last bloody sacrifice. And so we now have a different purpose. We're offering our lives as living sacrifices unto God, showing his worth and his value. You see, Christ has already been offered once for all, and he's been fully accepted by God on your behalf, and we are not bartering with God. Your purpose is not to make God love you. Your purpose is to respond to his already love for you. Does that make sense? 
Folks, that is so massive. So many of you still are trying so hard to get God to love you a little bit more. And just to eke into heaven if you do just a little bit more. But our purpose has changed. That we live this way as an act of worship. Worship meaning giving worth to God. The words of Revelation, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We're saying you're worthy of my life. No blood, but my life. So there's a new motivation and a new power. There's a new purpose for this living. There's also a new authority within our lives. You see, it's, an, it's a very different authority. Because what we're saying is this. God, I no longer control my life. I no longer have the right to make the decisions of my life. I no longer have the right to make the rules for my life. I no longer have a right to debate over the course of my life that I am entrusting my life to you, that I know what your will is. It's good and acceptable and perfect, and I submit to it, that we are presenting our lives to God and saying to God that we are putting to death the right to live as we see fit. It's a wildly American thought, isn't it? (laughs) To not live as we see fit? Isn't that at the very heart of almost everything that's going on within the world today, especially in our own country? I want to make my own rules. I'm going to play by my own rules. All previous rules are arbitrary rules and restrictive rules. I'm going to be and do and live however I want to live, to heck with everybody around me. And if you say no to me, then you're oppressing me. If you say no to my set of rules, then you are a hating, terrible, oppressing person. That is so not biblical, folks. But it is the mantra of our age. Out of the night that covers me black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings, bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Oh, a great poem. Wonderfully written and smelling of the smoke of hell itself. It has become the mantra of our day. I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. And at the very essence of this Christian life is a new authority that says this. I no longer decide what is right or wrong for me. I go by God's word. I no longer decide what has to happen in my life. I accept and trust what you send me, Father God. Oh, do you see the conflict that runs smack dab into it? But there's a new authority that we're saying that God has the authority within our lives and we submit to him and trust him and say to him, I relinquish the rights over my life. 
do to me as you will. Send me where you may, either to life or to death, to prosperity or to loss. But God, it's not up to me in the middle of this. I fully and constantly and regularly abdicate my position on the throne. And I give it to you fully. There's a new authority. There's a new motivation and power. There's a new purpose. There's a new authority. And there's also a new scope within our lives. Now, this seems to go without saying, but I think I need to say it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's a new scope, and here's the new scope. It affects the totality of your life. Paul is saying, your bodies, and some of you are going, what? It was a Greek understanding of saying the entirety of who you are. And what Paul is saying is that this scope is saying to us that in the presentation of our lives as living sacrifices to God that are holy and acceptable to Him, it is the totality of who we are. We don't get to decide which areas of our lives the gospel affects and which areas the gospel does not affect. Folks, that is an incredibly American thought. And we live it regularly. And it looks sort of like this. A friend and doctor friend of mine is who says that he loves the Lord, is the meanest man that you would probably ever meet within the surgical unit of his hospital. The nurses can't stand him. He cusses at them, throws things at them, yells at them. Why? Because he doesn't think that the gospel has to affect that area of his life. That the student doesn't think that the gospel has to affect the manner in which they study. That cheating in order to get ahead is okay. That it's okay to have and say, I'm a Christian now, Bill. And I hear, I mean, it's even on Sunday mornings, it's almost like a bragging of what happened last night within some of your lives. Boy, we were out late last night. I'm a little, feeling a little bad this morning. Should I laugh at that with you? Or should I be totally ashamed and saddened that you think that God doesn't care how much you drank last night? Or that you're living together, or that you're sleeping together outside of marriage, or, or that you're doing. It, it matters. In every area of our lives, it matters what we do. For there is a new scope. We don't get to say, I'm just going to do it over here, but not over here. It's not biblical. It's more comfortable, by the way, but it's not biblical. And so, folks, and if you're visiting and just tipping your toe maybe back into the church or that you're questioning the Christian faith, I want to be bluntly honest with you today. If you come to Jesus, He is going to mess with every area of your life. But He's not going to mess with every area of your life before you come to Him. You don't have to change all of that in order for Him to love you, but it's coming to Him and being accepted in Him and forgiven in Him that you find that now the Holy Spirit begins to root out all these other things. And so Christians, you should think that way too of other people. Don't tell them to dress up and come to church. Tell them to come to Jesus and He'll figure out if they should wear clothes or not. We start with the moral and forget the gospel. 
Start with the gospel, but then make sure it flows out into the moral. When I was up in the mountains, we were looking for a contractor to work on our house, and I was in the local coffee shop Bucks up there and talking to a couple of local guys. And I said, hey, I need to get a contractor to do some renovations on our basement, finish it out. I said, well, I can't necessarily recommend any one particular person to you, but I can tell you, don't go with any of those folks who have the little uh, fish on their cards. We shouldn't laugh. I'm sorry. We should cry. That that's the reputation of a Christian within the business community? That they're not going to do a good job? That they're going to take advantage of you? That's sad. An indictment of the church. It affects the totality of our lives. Every bit of it. And folks, let me get on on my little step a little bit here. Some of us really need to deal with this. In the church. In this church here. Because there's a reputation out of the community that affects not this church, but the glories of Christ himself. How we live affects how people consider our beautiful Savior. And I hope that what they find, they won't find perfection in Bill McCutcheon, but what I hope what they find is someone who at least points them in that direction. And I hope that's the way in your life too. C.S. Lewis said, we don't need more Christian artists. We need more artists who are Christians. We need more people who are so sold out for Christ that it affects every area of their life and every place of their life. Now, I've got to move quickly. But, folks, there's a different process, too. We've talked about the scope. The process, though, is this. It's a process that's from the inside out, not from the outside in. It says it's a renewal of your inner person, of your mind. It renews from who you are. It begins to ooze out of who you are by taking every thought captive, by going back to God's Word and looking at God's Word, of seeing what's true and what's right and what's honorable and perfect and acceptable to God, that we come there and that our lives are changed from the inside out. The world changes from the outside in. The gospel changes us from the inside out. And the word that he uses there is metamorphosis. And it's a word that's used within the chrysalis process of a caterpillar turning in and becoming a butterfly. And they say that when that caterpillar comes and it's within the chrysalis, that it actually liquefies and changes totally into something new. It is radically changed from the inside out and becomes that which it was designed to be. For too many of us here in the church, we are trying to staple butterfly wings onto a caterpillar instead of being radically changed. And the place where you are radically changed from the inside out is when Christ takes up residency within your heart. That He becomes the true affection of your heart. Thomas Chalmers, the wonderful Scottish pastor and theologian, wrote of the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power 
of a new affection. And what he meant by that was simply this. I love children. I think they're awesome. But when I was handed my sons by a doctor in a hospital, there was an expulsive power of a new affection. They took up root and they displaced every other child that I'd cared for. When Lisa walked down the aisle, and even before that, when we were engaged to be married, there was an expulsive power of a new affection that every other woman was diminished in my mind because of her and the place that she took up in my life. And folks, it is the same with Christ, that the process is that there is a new affection which has taken place and taken root and residency within you and feed that affection. Gaze upon its beauty. Fall in love with Christ more and more and you will fall less in love with the things of this world. But it's the expulsive power of a new affection. That's the process from the inside out. And so we come this morning now to this table. This was Christ's affection for you. And because of the joy set before him, because of the expulsive power of his new affection, his joy looking down into history and seeing you, he said, I'm willing to lay aside my affections for even equality with my Father in heaven and all the glories of heaven, and I'm willing to go and do these things for the love that I have for them. That's what this table represents. And what he is inviting you to is to say, would you love me similarly in a similar way? And as we approach the table, I invite you to come with me now and we're going to pray a prayer of need and confession printed for you in the bulletin based on the Lord's Prayer that we come to this table needy of his grace, recognizing His great value for us. So would you pray together with me?